1: Happy Friday, folks. I'm Andreas Stino, sending to you live the 12th of August. This is the Real Vision daily briefing, and um, it's been another amazing week in financial markets. Uh, as you all know, it's Friday, uh, so I guess you are all waiting for the star of the show, and um, here he is. Uh, welcome to you, Raul Pell. It's good to see you again back on the show. I think you're the
2: star. You're younger, better looking, and a better macro analyst. Other than that, I'll take second billing to
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for those words, Um uh, You sent a tweet uh, to me just before we went to on air here, um, showing that the um, greed and fear index of Bank of America has printed at zero, nine straight weeks in a row. What do you make of that? It was one of the
2: reasons somebody else has got a fear and greed index for crypto, and it got down to six. You know, crypto is always a very bullish market, and that was one of the signals that I used that the low was in. Look, and I've been long equities for a bit, and I've been observing this, writing tweet threads around it. That so much has been priced into equities, and we'll come onto some of those charts later. The year-on-year effects that Mm. everybody I spoke to was starting to say, "Well, it's going to go down to new lows. It's going to be an earnings recession." Blah blah blah, and it became the predominant narrative. That's okay. But the issue is, I did a tweet poll last week, or a week before. I said, how many of you think we're going to new lows? Out of the 25,000 people who answered the poll, 70%. I then said, how many of you are underweight versus your normal equity weighting? 75%. And then we look at the BOA survey that is as bearish as it, it's max bearish for nine possible weeks, and the market is just ripping in a straight line and that's telling us still nobody's participating so i've labeled this the most hated rally it's the same in crypto same in macro these rallies are utterly hated you know there's a narratives the market is tied to it's tied to and i think you you and i share all of these i think it's tied to oil is going up up only it's going to 200 dollars um inflation's going to be super sticky um equities are going to go to new lows, crypto is going to go to new lows, and bonds are dead money. And I just very much like the other side of that.
1: Raoul, well, if we um, if we look at the current debate in markets, uh, I think there is basically a camp of so-called recessionistas, expecting this recession to be just around the corner. And then there is a small camp, but a camp that is getting bigger, playing the so-called soft landing. Do you think a soft landing is a feasible scenario by now?
2: I've been caught out before by soft landings. 2016 was one of those, Um, 2015, 16, that whole period. I don't see it. My macro data is very clear that we should be going much, much lower. But I got caught out in 2016. It was the dollar back then that was looking like it was going to push the global economy off the cliff. Many economies went into the recession. The US didn't. I think that the economic damage from rates, the dollar, inflation is done. But what's confusing people is the market's job is to look kind of a year or eighteen months forward and think, what are the conditions? Well, even if it's six months forward. What are the conditions in six months' time? This is kind of the Stan Drucker Miller argument. The conditions in six months' time, if we're all right that a recession is coming, well, rates are much lower, and if we're wrong, and it's a soft landing, equities go higher. So, in all outcomes, equities go higher. So, it's a matter of where was the low. So, my view is, we go into recession. It's pretty nasty. It's pretty quick, um, and. The bond market's right to start pricing in a change in Fed policy um, at the turn of the year. They'll probably go on pause beforehand, by which case, you know, and again, you've been tweeting about this, and I've been tweeting about it. All of our work both suggest that the ISM is going to go hurtling through 50 in the next two to three months, which people aren't really prepared for trying to tell people. They kind of know, but I don't think they are. So I think they're going to try and sell equities on it when it comes out. And that's probably going to be a very big mistake because equities and the the bond market's kind of telling us what needs to happen. But there's still a few factors in place that aren't fully in place. I think both you and I would love to see the oil market sort of break these $85 level because I think it comes down to about 60. Then the year-on-year rate of change would be negative 50%. I think we get negative inflation in 18 months' time. Um, And then we also want bonds to really properly break this kind of two sixty level in terms of yield because then I think it opens it up to two percent, one and a half percent, one percent, depending on how deep the recession is. What do you what do you uh, think? What the, what's
1: what's your core yeah. view? I I mean, one of the things that I look at in my asset allocation framework is basically always the ISM manufacturing versus the yearly change in various asset classes. And I think we can bring up chart one, Claire, uh, on uh, US equities versus the ISM manufacturing figure. And basically, I started tweeting a couple of months ago that there was a big gap between um, the pricing in equity markets and the levels that we were seeing in ISM manufacturing. It may go much lower, but the the equity markets were sort of front-running this um, uh, the development ahead of it. While if you look at the same chart for the bond market, the bond market is not yet aware that the ISM manufacturing will fall off a cliff. So, I mean, from an asset allocation perspective, you could basically buy both equities and bond right now. Would you concur with that?
2: Yeah, so I've got to put up a chart that Julian Bittle put together for me at GMI, which is the year-on-year rate of change of all the asset prices Against the ISM currently, and against w- where our forward ISM is based on financial conditions, the forward ISM goes down to forty and bounces. It would suggest it's a nine-month lead. It would suggest that ISM starts bouncing in February, March next year. So, I we've got the, the worst to come. Now, if you rank all the asset classes, what I call exponential age stocks, which are the uh, the um, further out growth names were pricing ISM at 38 or 37. So they were super pricing in the recession, excess pricing in. NASDAQ was about 42. S&P, wherever you've got it, it's 40-something, 40 45, 44. Mm-hmm. And then bonds were at 63. It's like, wow. Now, it's happened a couple of times before, um, once was 2008. And I think it was, again, not sure when the other period was, but it has happened. And the outcome is always that bond yields utterly collapse, because they get stuck with the inflation narrative for a while. And then eventually, that narrative flips as the growth narrative comes. Usually, it's when the ISM crosses 50, bond market goes, I'm sorry, we got that bit wrong. The euro dollar market has been much smarter. It's like, no, 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 you bond market guys, you got this wrong. They're going to have to be cutting rates. But the bond market is still struggling to try and decide, is Inflation going to be stickier. Do we therefore need to price it? I don't think it's going to be, and that's why I'm proudly wearing my buy bonds, wear diamonds T-shirt because that asset allocation. I I would just buy Nasdaq, buy bonds, or mm. even more extreme. If you want to go further out of the risk risk curve, I think the best trade in the world right now is buy crypto, buy bonds.
1: You, you could argue that the reason why we've seen this big divergence between bonds and, for example, Nasdaq versus the ISM manufacturing is this more or less unprecedented uh, inflation pressure that we see right now. But given uh, the inflation report that we've seen this week, would you then argue that it could be seen as a trigger for the whole psychology around inflation in markets role? Yes. Yeah,
2: so we all go back and look at history but the hard thing is it's hard to remember the psychology of the period. All we've got is the charts that's left. So the psychology now is there are two big weights on the market. One is the inflation narrative. So when you take that away, the market's going to rise. The other weight is what does the recession do to the market? And people are looking at recession as Recession is when earnings collapse, therefore, there's another leg down to markets. They could be right. You know, none, none of us owns a monopoly on the truth here. We're just trying to probabilistically frame it out. And probabilistically, I think that the markets in this current world, which is a post-interest rate world, essentially, they know that the outcome is only one thing, which is stopping the increase of, firstly, stop the rate rises at no level at all. I mean, it's barely anywhere. Next is to stop the balance sheet. Then is what? It's three rate cuts and you're back to zero. So, therefore, anything, you know, most recessions, you need about 500 basis points of rate cuts. So, what we've tended to do is use Fed funds down to zero and then use the balance sheet for the balance because there is a rough equation or so the central bank thinks there is. So, therefore, the markets, if there is a recession, have to price 500 basis points somewhere within this. And they're just forward looking and saying, well, you know, the, the cowbell, more cowbell is coming. And okay. it's probably
1: right. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipsyn ads. Go to com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com.
1: Allow me to play the devil's advocate here, uh, Raoul, because uh, if we look at these correlations between ISM and equities and ISM and bond markets uh, over the past 20 years, they don't hold any information about an energy crisis because we haven't had a massive energy crisis over the past 20 years, for example. Do you think this energy crisis could wreak uh, havoc with uh, our asset allocation framework?
2: Uh, listen, it is incredibly complex, and we all have to be cognizant of having too strongly held views. However, we have had energy prices in the past, uh, energy crisis, and supply crisis. So the ones, and I've talked about it frequently on Daily Briefing and elsewhere, 1947 to 1949 was a supply crisis because everybody came into the civilian labor force, demand shock. Supply shock was, guess what? Nobody had been doing anything, so there was no supply. So we saw 20% inflation. It went negative uh, 18 months later, went back up again, and then settled down. Uh, the other one was uh, 1974, which was a oil, Arab oil embargo and that was a um a massive supply shock obviously the economy went down the toilet and the equity market went down the toilet the moment inflation turned around equities ripped higher so we've had the inflation tipping down then the other times where we had inflation but not necessarily an energy crisis are interesting one was 1982 which is you know Volker the hero kind of narrative that goes on well when we raised interest rates to eighteen percent, everyone's like, "He crushed the markets like a brave man." Yeah, the equity market went down twenty-seven percent and shot up like a rocket ship all the way till nineteen eighty-seven. Um, the next time we saw inflation behind that of nineteen eighty-two was nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety, the ISM collapsed to thirty-five. The Fed were raising uh, were cutting rates um, eventually. But what happened was the market went down 20% only. So we've got a recency bias going on here. The recency bias is 2001, 2008. Inflation is going to be driven by this commodity supply, ignoring demand. We've had examples in the past that are very clear to look at that seem to not be consistent with that. So there's the one analysis, the one only ever Was why inflation went up in 1977 through to 1982, right? That's what's in everybody's head. You see, it's going to come back from the money printing. They're all going to pay the price. That was the glory days of gold and the glory days of the commodity investor. You know, that whole thing is a narrative construct that was driven by demographics. It was never driven by some monetary inflation issue, it was driven by demographics. And so that demographic thing is not here today. So the probability of this. So again, I go back to another argument to add to that is, okay. we had a massive demand shock in in commodities, but no supply shock in the 2000s going into 2008, because China came in, right, the biggest demand shock in our working lifetimes. Commodities ripped. I mean, they all doubled and tripled. What was inflation over that period of time? If you just said, if I said all commodities are going to go up 300% from here, what's inflation? Everyone's going to go, it's going to be 15%. You know, it's the end of the world. Gold is going to be at infinity. They've destroyed everything. The answer was about two and a half percent. Because it's the rate yeah, yeah. of change that matters. And it's not just commodity prices. So then we talk about rents, owner equivalent rents. They're slow and sticky, but the housing market's falling apart, and they're linked to mortgage rates. They have to be, right? Because most people have a mortgage, rent out the property. Mortgage rates are coming down. And if we're both right, the bond yields are going to come down, the mortgage rates come down. So that stickiness is what plays out in 18 months time when inflation is back to zero again, in my view. So I don't see that probability. I spent a long time thinking about this, and I wrote a big kind of rebuttal in GMI um, last month on this whole thing, because I I take it seriously, because there's a lot of really good people I really respect with this view. And I just wanted to approach it and say, is this the most likely outcome or not, without ever saying, it's never going to happen. And I just came to the conclusion from all of the work that I did, kind of hundreds of hours of
1: this stuff is like, no. Let, let's have a look at the uh, epicenter of the energy crisis, namely Europe. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of fund managers recently, and um, they all seem to agree that Europe is stuck in a massive mess. But obviously, we always need to assess the market probability um, against so-called assessed probability from those experiencing uh, these moves in the market, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that if the sentiment is extremely negative in Europe, then it may be worthwhile buying into Europe, even if we all know that a recession is upcoming. So I think we can bring a chart up on the screen um, showing the German GDP versus the expectations index uh, from the IFO survey. So basically an equivalent to the ISM in Germany. And it looks absolutely terrible role. But could you still buy into European equities despite this? Well, what you haven't done is put the DAX on that chart.
2: So the DAX year on year, I don't know what it's down right now, but again, it's priced in quite a lot. So the issue is, is if it's priced in quite a lot, then what is the probability of a change? One of the things is I've been long with the dollar for some time and I'm getting close to closing it out because I think we're very close to levels. We didn't really break this parity level with the euro. It'll go in due course, whether it's in three months' time, a year's time, two years, I, I don't know, but it will go. But if the euro starts backing off, um, if the euro starts appreciating a bit, okay, that's a massive help to Europe because they've had the double whammy of high input costs from supply issues and a very weak euro. So, what's not priced in is any ability for something to go right. You know, if I were forward looking, and I and I talked about this maybe for six months now. Is the answer for some of Europe's energy issues is south of the border in Algeria? So Algeria has a lot of natural gas. It is so close to Spain. I mean, I flew there from Alicante. It's like half an hour flight. So they already have a pipeline. What there was no agreement was a pipeline from Spain through France into Germany, and it looked like today. And there's also Portugal has the massive. Natural gas terminal, so they don't have to come through the straits of Gibraltar and round. So with those two access points, you can get US LNG, and the uh, gas from Algeria. You've pretty much solved Europe because Europe can control Algeria much better than because it already you know Morocco is already an ally. So you're pretty much there anyway. And they're talking about that. The, The Spanish and the French were saying this is doable in nine months. So therefore, you need to start thinking, okay, what, what is the world in 18 months' time or 12 months' time? It's unlikely to be an energy crisis. I think, and I've said this all along, this energy crisis is only going to accelerate what Europe had to do, and it'll accelerate the green revolution behind it. So they take, they've decided to take the pain to solve a bigger problem. And I think it was the right thing to do. I, I honestly do, however much pain there was, this was braver than Volcker. What the Europeans have done is really brave, because, uh, fuck me, there's been expensive um, electricity prices and gas prices. I mean, it is astonishing. But there's been handouts, there's been direct transfer payments to try and offset it. You know, I I don't think the Europeans have done anything wrong here.
1: And I think at the end of it, Europe's in a much better position. Mm. I would probably tend to agree. Um, and um, I also decided to go long euro versus dollar myself this week. Oh, you have? As a consequence. Yeah, as a consequence of this. So I wanted to play a soundbite for you, Ro, uh, in yeah. relation to this debate on Europe. It's from a debate I had with Falter uh, Jonkblot yesterday. Um, he's the uh, chief policy risk advisor at Exanta Data. Uh, he's extremely knowledgeable around um, German policy, for example, but also Dutch policy. So a couple of the core countries in relation to this natural gas crisis. So let Let's listen to his um, viewpoints on uh, this energy crisis and get back to the discussion.
3: I think the the European Union itself did a uh, very bold thing in trying to push through a 15% consumption cut. So, yes, it's been focusing on getting supplies in place. It's been pushing its member states to make sure that supplies are in place. The member states themselves took responsibility, and each and every member state is pushing to somehow get more gas supply in. Um, But at a European Union level, getting that consensus around a voluntary 15% cut with the possibility of making that mandatory is a massive, massive leap in communal, if you wish, federal thinking on the European level and with the consent of many of these very important member states. So in that sense, the European Union right now looks like it's on the front foot much more than I would have previously expected. Now, if we're going into the winter, that can unravel, right? We know that when there's pressures on the member states, Uh, The European Union has a really, really tough time stepping up, maintaining its mandate, maintaining its authority, and a lot of these member states will, for right reasons, rightly or wrongly, try and pursue individual policies. That's really where the test will come.
1: The entire interview uh, between Walter Youngblood and uh, me will uh, be live on air on Tuesday on the Real Vision platform. Back to you, Raoul, Walter's point here is basically that um, the gas crisis could turn out to be less severe than priced in, and that he actually sees a potential upside risk for the euro uh, and maybe even European equities as a consequence of Europe coming together to solve this uh, energy crisis. I just mentioned that I went long euro dollar this week. Um, What's your take on on the euro versus the dollar short term here?
2: Yeah, I I think you're right. There are reports that Europe has a reasonable amount of storage of gas, right? Because they're not stupid. They know what's coming. So if that gets them through this winter and they do this deal that we were talking about with France and Spain and everybody else, which is, again, to Wouter's point, proving this idea that we can do this all together, cementing Europe more so, well, that is not in the market price. And the euro is probably the wrong price. Now, I'm no euro bull, and I tend to only trade in the direction of the secular theme, the secular thing for me is the dollar higher. So I won't trade it, but I think you're probably right. Um, if I use DMARC indicators, it put in the weekly low. Um, I thought it was going to put in another daily low, didn't, and it looks like it might break higher from here. So I've still got a position that I'll probably stop out of soon, but it's really interesting. The other trade that I was just, as I was watching this, I thought, I better check these, the EU ETS carbon market. So this was a great trade. A lot of people in Macro Insiders, uh, uh, Real Vision Pro got into and Global Macro Investor too uh, last year. And it's been forming this big wedge pattern. And it looks like it's very close to breaking out. So what, what it's saying here, again, it's a really interesting thing, is the Europeans have said, yes, we like the Germans have said, yes, we're just going to turn the coal power back on for now. But what they know they need to do is pay for the energy transformation, and everybody's been giving energy handouts. The carbon credits are like coal power, guys. We've just given you free money. You're going to pay it to us back, and we'll distribute it to the states. So they are incentivized, which is why this EU ETS system is so genius, is everybody's incentivized for it to work. And so I think that, and I'm just looking at the chart, and I hadn't looked at it for a bit. I was thinking it was going to form this pattern. If it breaks out of here, and I know people who... Follow it at home. You can also use KRBN as the ETF works pretty well. If that goes again, it's a really clever mechanism. So Spain has been giving money to households. I mean, when I was in Spain, you, you go and fill up the car, and they just just remove cash from the bill, or if you give them cash, they just give you a handout. You're like, wow. And I'm not even Spanish. I mean, you know, but they just do it to anybody, anybody who can who consumes um, fuel. So if that's the case, the Spanish government is in trouble from this. So we've heard this, you know, we'll kind of do anything it takes again to keep everything together. Well, meanwhile, the carbon um, trade means that everybody who's who's creating all this extra um, pollution, carbon pollution, ends up having to pay the governments because it all gets split down. The fines, and not the fines, the cost of the credit gets split back down to the member
1: states. It's actually quite clever. Mm, it really is. And you know, Raul, Spain's got the best food in the world, so they do fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Denmark is the wanted... number one restaurant in the world right now. Yes, we do have that. <laughs> so you should come visit that one. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.
1: By the way, uh, now that I have you uh, online uh, at the Real Vision Daily Briefing, we also need to spend five minutes on crypto. Um, We've seen uh, quite an interesting price uh, action in crypto space this week, obviously very positive across the board. But either is basically um, breaking to new highs, at least um, uh, for the past month here. Uh, What do you make of this whole merge story um, uh, for mid-September? Is it a classic buy the rumor, sell the fact event?
2: So firstly, the crypto market was caught short, same reason. Um, and it's still to this day underweight. All of the hedge funds are underweight. Most market participants are underweight and people are getting angry and bitter on Twitter. So I note that that same dynamic is there. The ETH merge is a really, really big deal. And I talked a bit about this because not only is it you know, the supply and demand story, blah, 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 but it's actually going to create the benchmark yield for the for the internet, for Web three, and everything should be ETH plus three hundred basis points or whatever it is, as we did with Treasuries, because we've got the benchmark yield for everything. It's really interesting. I think it's a very, very big deal for institutions. It's a very big deal um, for the pensions fund industry who want yielding assets. It, um, it's very big deal deal for DeFi. So. I think the market is massively underpricing the long-term impact of what is going on right now. I think this is the biggest innovation and change in this space since stable coins, and then before that, Ethereum itself. So it's of an order of magnitude of that. So by the rumor sell the fact, market the crypto's ETH getting a little bit overbought, probably corrects a little bit, goes again, probably goes into the ETH merge, and I think the narrative is by the rumor sell the fact. And what we'll get is like a cheeky ten percent correction, and it's like, see, see, we're going to be able to bite back at the lows, and it's going to rip everybody's heads off, because the macro narrative is changing. If the macro narrative was was still inflation going up, rates going up, then I would say, yeah, there's not much chance or M two uh, falling, the rate of change of M two, but that whole shift is starting to get priced by crypto. So I don't see how it goes down. I really do, I just don't see it. So I'm, I'm extremely bullish, as, as you can tell. And it's an uncomfortable place for me to be so bullish equities into a recession, but that's where I am. I'm very bullish bonds and I'm extremely bullish crypto. I managed to catch the low pretty much to the day. Um, and yeah, eats up over 100% <laughs> in, a, in a month. It's crazy. But we've barely started. Everybody's underweight. We've got this massive supply shock, demand shock, and complete shift to the market. So there will be volatility. It will suddenly see these air pockets are down 10 20%, really sharp. And everyone's like, see, see, it's all going to fall apart. Um, And then I
1: think it rockets higher. One thing that I have also noted is the correlation between the uh, consumer basket and the crypto space. So basically, basically, if you look at the inflation prints that we've received over the past 24 months or so, and um, calculate the correlation versus crypto, you get a correlation of minus 80% thereabout. Uh, so the interesting thing here is that if we've peaked, then you should buy crypto with an arm and a leg.
2: I think crypto forecast it, because I've noticed the same. Yeah. And why is that? It's really simple is every day you bring home wages, go back to 2021, if you were young and you wanted to invest, you put it into crypto, this dollar cost averaging world. And then what happened was inflation came along and everyone was too busy paying the rent and paying for their vegetables in the supermarket and they couldn't buy any crypto. So you saw the amount of new funds going into crypto falling with the same number of active wallets, but just falling. So if you take inflation away, incremental money flows in into crypto market. So I think crypto saw it. It was something I, that helped me, again, get the low is I, I saw the turn. We knew it was coming, right? We probably got it, both of us probably got it wrong last month expecting the turn in CPI. But the crypto market said it's, it's here. And I think that was dead right. And if inflation's uh, going to had- go negative, well, where is, where is Bitcoin or where, where is ETH? I mean, these things are huge
1: they are. We've had a, a bunch of questions coming in here, Raul. Um, so let's try and answer a few of them before we c- uh, conclude on today's show. Anthony is asking you uh, about the potential for an uh, earnings recession. Uh, we've been talking about this uh, potential for an economic recession, but uh, in terms of equities, earnings obviously matter. Do you fear the earnings recession in terms of your positive view on equities right now?
2: I mean, that is the, that's the flip side to my view. So my view is, economy lower, but it's priced into equities. People like Yuri and Timmer, who we had on recently, is like, we could have another leg because earnings come down. And my argument with that is, I don't know real earnings versus um, uh, nominal earnings. Not sure how that plays into it. And the last two times we had high inflation uh, and growth went negative was 1990 and 1982, and the market didn't have the earnings leg lower. So some people say, "Yeah, but in '82 the PE was seven. Well, 1990 wasn't like that. So you know the market had been ripping higher for a decade. You know, with the with the pause in '87. So I, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's observable that it happens, but not always necessary. So um, I don't know, but mm. I don't fear it. Is my point generally? I don't. It's not my base case. Even if we do re-rate earnings, I think the market just raises the PE.
1: I tend to think that earnings basically lack the equity market to some extent. Uh, that's at least the, the, the conclusion you get if you look at it over a, uh, a long uh, time series. Uh, final question for your role. Um, you are wearing the T shirt buy bonds, wear diamonds. We have a question from the audience which bonds, Europe, European or US bonds? Well, I think European bonds are probably a good buy. Um, mm. I just, it's just
2: easier for most people who watch this. To just buy US bonds, and because you can do the the ETF of TLT, Mm. you know those are around markets. You know we all love the ten year Treasury bond future. You can get leverage, and you know you can. That's where most of us in the markets in macro land have made our careers is trading euro dollars and um, ten year bonds. Yeah, I used to trade a lot of bonds, but less so because European interest rates haven't moved a lot. But yeah, I mean you can buy any of those; doesn't really matter. You can even buy. You can even sell dollar yen as as um, Western said, because basically yields back off the selling of yen decreases, and so the yen rises um, so there's a number of ways you can skin the cat as it were
1: Raul, you know, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme. Uh, And today I asked my Twitter followers to come up with the best meme on the European energy crisis. And we had a a load of great candidates, uh, but let's bring up the winner uh, today. Uh, I simply loved this meme uh, showing a a painting uh, of a woman receiving her electricity bill. Uh, (laughs) Oil on canvas, it says. Um, (laughs) I think it was lovely. Um, Raul, it was great chatting to you. Have a great weekend and you and to everybody watching as well and
2: good luck out there let's see what next week brings.
1: yeah exactly thanks for watching out there Maggie lake my colleague will be back with michael guide on monday take care out there what's up revolutionaries thanks for tuning in to the real vision daily briefing for more content like this head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very
2: best